Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is July the 3rd, 2015, and this is episode 1603 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, it is Friday, so it is time for the Listener Council Show. We have 13 uh, members of the Listener's Expert Council, and uh, these guys are awesome, and I have 12 of the 13, almost Almost a full dugout today. The one holdout, the one guy you would never expect to miss a show, but he's on vacation. Mr. Stephen Harris is on vacation, and I basically said, dude, enjoy your vacation. We'll, we'll, we'll be here when you get back. And on that note, remember, next week, it'll have a show Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yours truly, Jack Spirko, is going on vacation for about a week and a half, and I will be gone. You can listen to uh, older episodes, use the random episode feature, or just take a break, whatever you want to do. Uh, please know that I don't like leaving and going that long without a show, but like everybody else, I need a vacation at times. Before I get to your questions for the expert counsel, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and help sure, make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is a ready-made resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens and everything in between. You'll find it at ready-made resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check. They've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can or by the case? They've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? Got it. Check. No problem. You want to start canning? Whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators? Got that, too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at SawTac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to SawTac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains, That's why they call them SawTac, and when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtac.com, and they also do do a discount for members of the support brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from SawTac, get into your MSB account, click on Benefits, and look up SawTac and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the sawtooth wilderness of Idaho, sawtac.com. All right, with that knocked out, let's go ahead and uh, look at the year that was the episode. The awesome Alex Shrugged has two for us today. For the year 1603 in the TSP Wiki, I have Kinko Man Soy Sauce and Non-Governmental Certifications. And then I have the Death of Queen Elizabeth and the Last of the Tudors. 
When I read this and saw the two things, I thought I would actually choose Kinko Man soy sauce because 1603 is when the first family that merged with other families that made Kinko Man today started. And I think most of us know of Kinko Man soy sauce. And so it's kind of interesting to know when the genesis was, but now we know that. I'm going to read the other one because, boy, it has a much more hit-you-in-the-eyes, I-wonder-if question with my take by Jack Spierko. Um, anyway, we'll read it, and Alex Shrug's take, who puts these together for us on TSP Wiki, and I'll give you mine. I'd love to hear your comments, so the question I'm going to give you at the end. The death of Queen Elizabeth and the last of the Tudors. Queen Elizabeth I has been languishing for several months in deep depression as her friends drop off one after another into the big sleep. She's 69 years old and has been variously called Good Queen Bess, the Virgin Queen, or her personal favorite, Gloriana, the Fairy Queen, after the poem by Edmund Spencer. One has the sense that she has been a mother of Great Britain, but she has taken a turn for the worst. The experts don't know what is medically wrong with her other than she is having difficulty breathing. Her court gathers around her deathbed as they watch her breathe her last. In the early morning hours, she is laid in a coffin and conveyed down the river on a barge lit with candles. She is entombed alongside her sister, Mary. Mary was the same woman who plotted Elizabeth's overthrow. Now all is forgiven as they lay to rest side by side. Elizabeth's nephew, King James of Scotland, will take the throne. My take by Alex Shrugged. Queen Elizabeth did her best to rule rather than reign. That is, she actively governed the country and led the parliament uh, rather than passively let men guide her. She often referred to herself as a prince to remind herself and others she intended to rule England like a man. This is the reason she avoided marriage, because if she married, she would have been expected to submit to the will of her husband. Nevertheless, she was able to hold out the possibility of marriage's leverage in international relations, so to speak. I'm giving the impression she was perfect. She was not. But she was willing to do the job to the best of her ability. I remember an historian said that the best rulers were those with no expectation of ruling. Elizabeth had been removed from the succession by her father, King Henry VIII. She had absolutely no reason whatsoever to expect that she would ever take the throne. As a result, she didn't have to fret over it for years until the job was thrust upon her. My take by Jack Spierko. This actually makes me think of something that seems totally unrelated. Uh, a, a, a short story written by Kurt Vonnegut um, and then made into a movie in the, I think the 90s and then remade into like this weird dystopian thing again and don't get the weird dystopian one, it doesn't make any sense uh, but it's kind of like a B movie uh, Harrison Bergeron again is the name of the movie and if you find the right one it's a little over an hour and 40 minutes long or something like that and it starts off like it's like the 50s and that song, Lollipop, Lollipop, that song, it'll be the jingle playing as the credits come on. That, that's how you'll know you found the right one. I'll put the link to it on, on uh, YouTube if I can find it today for you on YouTube. It's, it's worth a watch in, in the movie. And I've never actually read the short story, so I don't know if the dystopian weird thing that I found one day looking for it or the, the, the 90s movie is closer to the reality of the short story but in the movie, the story is basically that humankind has been decided by those in power that we should all be equal. And everybody has to wear a band around their head, which makes you equal. So if you're smart, you get dumbed down to the, the average common denominator. It starts out with Harrison's band has been turned way up in high school, but he's still getting A's instead of C's. And he feels bad about that. And the teacher tells him he's so wrong for excelling and go get his band turned up. And there's a lot of other things that go on in this movie that I won't get into since we're just in an intro segment here. But 
the upshot is eventually he meets other people who take their band off and explore intellectual curiosities. And he's finally taken in by what you would call today like the Illuminati type guys, the people that are really controlling everything from behind the scenes. And they control everything sort of. They basically just keep the ball moving, and the government has been turned over to random selection. And the President of the United States is selected every four years out of the phone book. That's it. And when they get into a conflict, a potential conflict with the Soviet Union, Harrison's freaking out, and the guy that's his mentor inside the like Illuminati group says, you don't F, and he says the full word, with the will of the people. Let it alone. Let them handle it themselves. And what they said, and it's like, there's no good in this movie at all. Don't, don't look for it that way. But what they said is, it was just as effective to randomly select people out of the phone book for president as the elections had been. And it ended a lot of fighting and, and, and discord and stuff like that. And obviously, I don't, I don't think it's really a good idea that we randomly select our leaders from the phone book. But going back to good Queen Bess, Queen Elizabeth, the last of the Tudors, who seemed to be better than those before and after her, Because she had no expectation of ruling. Just one day, hey, guess what? You, you, you've got the throne. Oh, really? I do? Okay, I guess I'm going to do my job then. Might it be better if we were led by people who had no expectation to be in power or control? Who had not spent years and decades of their lives plotting, scheming, struggling to get to the top of the heap so they could have control? Think of what you have to do to become a leader in government today whether it's through the electoral process or in a bureaucracy. The people at the top levels of the bureaucracy and the people at the top levels of elected government are the sleaziest people out there. They are the people that have been willing to play the game, to stab everybody in the back, to do whatever it took to get where they are. Now, do I have a better system? No, I don't. I don't claim to. But I don't believe this system is as good as we can do. That's why I focus most of my efforts anymore, rather than in that dirty, sordid system, furthering my own individual liberty, and it's why I encourage you to do the same. That if we really want leadership, the only people left to lead on any meaningful le level are ourselves. We must stand up and be the leaders in our own life. You might say to yourself, I have no ambitions of power. Good. That will make you a good leader in your life. My take by Jack Spierko. Now, with that, I want to remind you guys that if you love the show, you want to help support it, consider becoming an MSB member. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members, and you can learn more there. And that's all I will say about that today. Other than military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you qualify for a discount. Uh, when you join the member support brigade, you can get that discounted price. Just email me before, not after you join. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com, and I will get a discount code back to you. Remember, before, not after you join. Okay, um, with that, let's get into your, your first question for the expert panel today. I've got something a little bit different going on for you today. I had a question come in, and I'm going to give you the question, and then I'm just going to go ahead and play both responses to the question because I had two expert council members give an answer. Uh, this is a permaculture type question about dealing with uh, a homestead issue with floodplain. So I sent that to both Jeff Lawton and Ben Falk. Here's the great part. 
I haven't actually even listened to either one of these two yet myself. I'm going to listen to it with you and give you my thoughts at the end of it. But neither Jeff nor Ben knows what the other one said. So these are completely different opinions. They may be different. They may be very similar. I don't know. But they are completely individually formed from two very switched-on people in dealing with situations like this. The question is from listener Morgan. Um, it says, I have a chance to buy 12 acres, currently use this pasture along a creek. Around eight of the acres are sloping hillside down. The raining four are very flat along the creek. The flat acreage floods anywhere from one to six times a year when heavy rains come, and the creek exceeds its capacity. Local laws will not allow me to block the creek with dikes or levees, nor fill in or elevate it uh, the 18 to 24 inches it would take to keep it mostly dry. How should one plan to best use this? So, again, I've given this to both Ben and Jeff. So we'll play both answers for you, and we'll see how those answers kind of play off each other and just get two really switched-on guys giving you the, the, an answer to the same question from a different standpoint. I'm looking forward to this one. I hope you guys enjoy it. So um, I have a question this week from Morgan. And then in brackets, note, I'm giving you and Ben Falk both this question, the contrast, the approaches, and it should be fun. Okay, well, nice to be taken, uh, having the fun taken out of you. Anyway, hopefully this turns out to be fun. Here you go. Um, what I think you can do is you can put a biological silt trap in and no one can stop you planting trees as a biological silt trap. I don't know what climate you're in. Clumping bamboo is a wonderful biological silt trap. It might be a bit contentious in your area. Uh, I imagine this is North America, and you could well have some very valuable variations of willows, and willows grow very easily, and you can stake them in as large cuttings. You can sledgehammer them in as large cuttings and then trim the top when you've bashed it over with the sledgehammer, make a nice clean cut on it, and let them regrow. You can put a nice line across your creek flat. Now, what you want is a harmonic hook, You need to actually look at the harmonic curves, you could probably do it on Google Earth, of your creek and set it up so that you have a nice gentle lead-in to the line of willows, like the sh like the almost like the straight shank of a hook. If you're a fisherman, you know what I mean. When you look down on a, on a, on a fishing hook, it's got a straight, oh, let's talk about a small bait hook, but you've got a small straight section coming off your creek down the shank of the hook and then it curves into the hook where you've got actually the point and the barb so what you actually need to do is you need to gently lead off from the creek and then take it out along the line of willows and then hook back and take the willows slightly up the hill what you'll do is you'll dissipate the energy of the creek lead it out slow it down slowly some water will go through the willows of course and the older they get the more the better they'll get at this as you slow down the water and you take the deposits out to the outer curve of the hook away from the river on where where it comes down to your slope country what will happen is the organic matter which is really mulch and wood and twigs and branches and all kinds of things that are floating down the creek They'll build up on the upside of your line of willows or bamboo or whatever you want to choose, but they've got to, got to be something that handles this sort of dynamic event. 
and they'll dynamically flex and they'll sort of have tensile strength and flex with the flood and even can go right under the flood but your organic manure will build, out, build up on the top side and the lower side silt will deposit silt and sands will fall out because it's a, it's a law of aquadynamics and aerodynamics when you slow down the velocity the, the dynamic effect is that the, the, the material being carried drops out in relation to the velocity and the, the, the reduction in velocity that you've created. So if you've got a nice, don't put a straight line in, hook it out, right? hook it away from the creek. You'll get a, a beautiful mulch harvest on the upside and a beautiful silt bank building up on the, on the downside. And eventually, that'll, that'll become an extending ridge that'll come down off your slope country, giving you kind of a deposition system. I remember Jack, Jack Spurko, commenting on this as being kind of like uh, you're creating your own delta. Well, you kind of are. You're, you're creating your own deposition banks. But the trick is, permaculturally, you've got to pattern this event to really work well and harmoniously with the flows, natural flows of your creek itself. And, and I think this will work great. Um, and um, if you go the other way, if you put the fishing hook backwards and put the shank back to the creek and you're concentrating the flow, what you'll get is a deep fishing spot in the creek. You'll get a deep hole scouring out. You won't get anywhere near the same amount of deposition on your, on your banks. But you'll get a you get a deep hole that's permanently scoured out, and it'll be a good fishing spot because you'll have created a deep hole in the creek, and all fishermen know around the edge of the deep holes that's where the creek, that's where the fish wait for the for the bait um, and and uh, and the food to fall into the bottom of the hole, uh, so they get an easy feed. So you can go both ways. It's all documented in Bill Mollison's designer's manual, the harmonics and the aqua dynamics of designing silt traps, sediment traps into floodplains. Uh, great adventurous thing. I've got them here at Zaytuna Farm. Um, I love mucking about with this stuff because I'm a fisherman and I like being around the creeks and the rivers. Okay, nice answering your question. Thanks. All right, next up on the same question, Ben Falk for a different take on the uh, the same problem. And again, guys, I don't know which one, which what's what Ben's going to say at all. I haven't heard either one of these. I just heard Jeff's along with you. So I'll come back with my thoughts after we hear both of them. I get the advantage of hearing both of them first. Hello, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Great question, um, and it's a, a challenging situation, and I think it really comes down to, you know, what, how do we really work with floodplains in general? I think that's the big picture here. Um, but of course there's a lot of specifics and the answers to your question vary, um, not surprisingly, and there's a lot of it depends. So before I get into, you know, general, a generalized answer, I'd have to ask a few questions back. Um, and because the best approaches really depend on the following factors at the very least, and there are others as well. First of all, what's your climate? You know, where are you in the world? Is there ice coming down the river like there is where I live in the spring? You know, multi-ton blocks of ice when, when rivers break up in the spring and those blocks of ice knock down anything in their path, um, even including small earthworks and definitely new plantings. 
or is this a more mild part of the world where there's no real breakup of, of river ice? Um, what are the flood frequencies? Is this a, you know, kind of classic temperate climate where we have a lot of high flows in spring and then kind of on and off high flows in summer thunderstorms? Or is this a place in the world that gets, you know, kind of a monsoonal cycle for, uh, you know, two to three months? Um, What's the watershed context? What's upriver of you? Is you know, are you near the top of a watershed, or are you in a, a area where there's a lot of forest, and the water is relatively clean above you, and um, there's a lot of absorptive capacity in the watershed? Is it low angle? Is it steep? Are there you know, is there a landfill above you? You know, what's what's the watershed context that matters on a lot of fronts, both in terms of how flashy the watershed is, and also in terms of how contaminated the water might be that you're dealing with that all um, comes to play in terms of how much do you want that water on your land or not how much of a benefit is it usually it's quite a benefit um What's the shape of the river on your land, both in profile and cross section and also in plan view? Um, you know, do you have very steep banks or are the banks low angle? How eroding are the banks? Um, also, are you an inner curves or outer curves? You know, is the river scouring your land or is it actually accreting and depositing um, sediment on your land? Is it building land for you? I imagine if you're on four acres, usually where I live in the areas I work, a uh, four acre small to mid-sized stream, you're going to have usually an inner curves and outer curves. You're going to have scouring uh, and deposition. So you want to work with both. You want to maximize, of course, the deposition and minimize scouring. Uh, what are your goals? You know, do you want to graze or do you want to focus on tree crops or are you a vegetable farmer? I mean, you know, most of the floodplain soils around here, if they're farmed, they're for, for annual crops. Typically, those are our best soils in, in hilly areas. Um, what are your skills? You know, what's the access you have to the land? What is your infrastructure? Those all come into play as far as what's the best thing to do, which I think your question was based around. Um, not having, obviously, the answers to any of those questions, I can just give you some general strategies and principles. Um, first order of business is to lo stop losing any land that you're losing, right? Steam bank, stream bank stabilization, so immediately address any erosion problems. That's mo most uh, easily done through willow fascines or um, plantings of the like, really dense uh, pioneering species, willows, nitrogen fixers, um, any of your fast-growing, fast-rooting plants. You can also definitely broadcast seed, but trees are going to do the most work for you. Um, so plant up your banks. Make sure you have a good 10 to 30, 20, at least 20, 30-foot buffer if you can afford it. Um, the thicker, the better. So stabilize your bank, reduce erosion, um, plant pioneers all the way to climax species. We know climax is actually not really a reality, but pioneer to long-lived species, interspersed nut trees, masking trees in with your pioneers. Um, and you may need to do minor earthworks to actually get these trees to take because in certain parts of the world, in certain contexts, the spring floods, whether they have ice or not, will knock out your new planting. So sometimes you need to put in deflective earthworks like little dune shapes in the land or 
boulders and plant on the leeward and kind of downstream side of those boulders to to get plants to take. Um, again, it depends a lot on, on various aspects of your context. Um, and then seek to add land wherever you can. You can plant in various ways to actually accrue land and promote deposition. Right. So the the, the actual process um, that happens in in a in a floodplain is something you want to work with of course you want to avoid trying to channelize the river and keep the river where it is um, of course you can't afford to have the river move you know like it would naturally but you really want to avoid channelization you want to allow the stream to have access to its floodplain we run into major problems when we ignore that need and we send energy downstream and just cause cause the problem to go downriver. The river streams are giving you um, sediment, great soil, the best soil settle out, fertility, and of course some irrigation value. And that's why your soils are probably very good if you buy a stream. So you just want to leverage that. The best thing you can do is to observe how this stream behaves in and where it has access to its natural floodplains in your watershed. So I would walk up and down the stream and look for the places where the stream bank is as stable as possible and where there's floodplain access and look at the species that are there, look at how the river is accessing its floodplain and see how that works. Um, you may seek to have your whole bottom four acres forested. That'd be great. That'd be highly resilient. But you may also want to do things like graze it. And you can definitely graze it. Don't graze right to the stream. That's a, a really classic and uh, bad mistake to make. You'll, you'll lose your land pretty quickly um, or continue to if you already are. But grazing is definitely a viable option here. I mean, you can move, you know, if you're rotationally grazing, which you imagine you would be, um, it's movable electric fencing. We know when floods are coming. Most of the time we have even multi-day warning before flood cycles. You can move your animals and, and fencing right out of the floodplain. So that's really viable, but you want a major buffer uh, before um or, or along with the grazing uh, operation that you might have there. Um, you can seek, on the planting front, you can plant in various patterns. Actually, Jeff Lawn has a great video about this uh, site, I think, in Minnesota, where they're working with the river in a very um, high-leverage way. Depending on how you shape your plantings, you can cause deflection or you can cause absorption of both debris and soil. Your main goal is to avoid the kind of debris deposition that could be destructive, but to encourage deposition of sediments and fertility on your land in as low of a velocity as possible. It's really not the flooding that you have to be concerned with. It's the velocity of the stream movement that can cause problems for you. As long as, of course, you don't put anything permanent in the floodplain, and that's a clear recommendation, is don't build in the floodplain. Don't put any permanent structures in the floodplain. Good luck to you. It's a, it's a great challenge and one we, we need to address all over the world. Great stuff and similar but different approaches, and it, it is a little ego-stroking to hear Jeff Lawton mention what I said, said about this issue in the past. That's I'll, I'll admit that. I kind of dug that. Uh, anyway, though, here's here's my additions. I think both of these guys give you great advice. One is, and, and, and Ben spent more time on this, the totality of design we need to look at. What do we really want to happen? And I, I say that more because some of the things I might add, you may or may not want to do, Morgan, and somebody in your situation may or may not want to do it. 
we always focus on what we can't do when people say, well, you can't fill in the, the valley and, and raise it up uh, above the, the creek so that it won't flood anymore, which would be a bad idea anyway because as Jeff, or not Jeff, as Ben said, that would make a channel. That would actually make the water flow faster through there, and we want to slow and we want to seep. And we want, we want to, to, uh, to infiltrate water. We do not want to move water fast. We want to move water slow. So I can't fill in the whole valley, and it doesn't matter, because I probably wouldn't fill the whole valley in anyway. The amount of uh, deposition necessary to do that, the creek can do it for me over time, but I'm not going to do it with a bulldozer or a dump truck. It just doesn't make sense. But what I can do is I absolutely can plow my field. There's there's nothing that prevents me from doing that. I can do something called a code USDA code 600 agricultural terrace, okay? And that 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 USDA code 600 agricultural terrace may even if I'm on agricultural land qualify for government subsidies where they'll pay me to do it and keep it in place to reduce erosion and no one gets to tell me exactly where and how to put my terraces in. They just have to be compliant with code, which has to do with being on contour or or no more than a certain degree off contour of which 1% is okay. So I can take two different approaches here to do more of everything that these two guys said, which is I can go in with something simple and cheap like a two-bottom plow and lead that water either using contour or slightly off contour with terraces that are actually swales wherever I want it to go as slow as possible. Then I can't fill in the whole place, but a la Mark, the Mark Shepard sheets, I can take dirt from one spot and move it to another spot to get some fill, right? So I can't fill in the hole, and I don't want to. But what I might want to do is one of these fish hooks that allow deposition to come out, I might accentuate that with or add on to it with some sort of a plowed swale. Very simple, small depression that no bureaucrat's going to understand. And at some point, I may take a spot where I want that thing to stay on contour or just barely off contour at half a percent, and it doesn't really go, it gets too curvy, it gets in some way I don't want it to go. So I just take and I use something like a front-end loader or a bulldozer, whatever, and I just flip some dirt over. I make a little pocket pond. A little bit pocket pond, and then the swell just continues through the part that I flipped over. When this event happens now, and that deposition comes out along the tree lines that we've created and the swales that we've created, that little pocket pond fills up with water. Now I have water being held away from my creek, even after the floodplain goes back down, that becomes a little amphibian pond. And I've got a place I can, if I've got grazers, I can graze them there instead of all the way down to my creek. But see, I haven't made a pond, right? You heard Jeff a little bit annoyed with, with code here, right? You could hear it right at the beginning. I tell you, can't, they can't stop you from planting trees. Well, I, I, I like that fire, and that's what I'm saying here. I can't, you can't stop me from making a hole, right? I've just made a hole. I haven't made a, a, a pond. Now, if I put something in there like ducks or pigs, they'll seal it right up, and it will be a pond. And if it floods, if it literally floods half a dozen times a year, it's going to be a permanent little pond in time. So now I've got this deposition all along these leading edges, but I also get this excess water held and seeped through my dry periods, and I've got a place to water my animals. And I can pull that water away from the creek, 
and I, because I have this constant flooding situation, I don't have to dam or impede the creek. I let nature bring the water in, kind of like a chinampa, sort of. And then that water fills in that pond, and then it resides back to the creek. And over time, the deposition gets higher and higher. And what I end up with is this hilly, textured landscape. There's always going to be some flooding in there. But now my flooding is actually bringing me fertility, but it's also got places where I can grow things, whether they're annuals, perennials, whatever, up out of where they're not sopping wet. We're slowing things down even further, and we're reducing the effects of flood without channelizing the creek. That's my addition. Now, I got the benefit of listening to both of these guys first, but and the benefit of working with Ben in the past and, 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 and spending a lot of time talking to Jeff and the benefit of working with Mark. So I think that's part of what my big message is on permaculture. It all works. That's why I love Jeff. Jeff will tell you that. Ben will tell you that, too. It all works. It's just a matter of applying it to the situation on the ground. And the truth is, for Morgan, maybe none of these are the right idea. For Morgan, maybe the idea is just plant the whole damn thing with trees that can handle the wetness. Deposition will take care of it from there. Just make sure your stuff can handle it. I don't know. Morgan has to make Morgan's own decision. But that's kind of like if I wanted to give it this extra kick, I'd create these little pockets all along these deposition channels. And if I was ever asked by an inspector or whatever, what is that? That's a USDA Code 600 Agricultural Terrace, my man. By the way, sign off on this so I can get my subsidy for it. And we get paid on it for the next 12 years to leave it that way and let it prevent erosion and create a riparian buffer from the creek. That's what that is. See, sometimes, sometimes, as much as I hate to take part in government, you have to know their system and play their game. Anyway, let's go ahead and take the next one now. This one's for Michael Jordan. I promise I won't have my own opinion on this one other than uh, I'll like what Mike has to say because he knows a lot more than me about bees because I don't know nothing about this one. From Jim, Michael, I want to learn more about queen rearing, raising queens and or nucleus colonies to sell. This is my third year as a beekeeper in northern Virginia. I have two Lancer of hives with all medium bodies, 10 frames each. I have Calolonian bees that are easy to care for, and I enjoy them. Sometimes I discovered that I have either rolled or squished my queen, and then I have to deal with replacing her from my fresh eggs or buy or get one from a trusted source. I want to learn to do it myself. Thanks for everything, Jack and Michael. Mr. Jordan, what have you to say on this? Welcome to Beekeeping 101. I am Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company, here to talk to Jim in Virginia on learning about raising queens, nucleuses for sale, and the purpose of raising queens to repopulate hives. I'm going to shoot out some information for you to look up and study and do some homework. I want you to look up Miller Queening Method. Do little splits for beehives and the whole punch larva method for queening. So let's get started. Most people buy a JZ-BZ queening system. JZ-BZ queening system. I think it's a good place to start looking into queening. It uses a fake cell box uh, that you put uh, plastic queen cups in. You hang this inside of a frame in your beehive and you place your queen in it. Your queen will then lay larvae in the little box cups in this package. And in two days, you take it out, putting her back to work in the hive, and you have about 25 to 50 queen cups that have brand new one to two day old larvae in them. You take these queen cups and you place them in mounting brackets, or what they call base mounts, on the bottom side of your top bar. 
Now, if you're using a frame that has foundation and stuff in it, you take the foundation out and you mount the little uh, cups on the bottom of the frame. A top bar, you're just going to mount them on the bottom of the frame just like you would your wax. The bees will now make queen cells or a hanging peanut that the queen will be in. Within 10 days, you're going to put what they call a protective cell cover over them. So if they're put in a hive that has a queen in it, she won't go through and sting each cell, killing the new queens. That if you're putting them in a nuke box for raising, you just basically need nurse bees to keep going for them when they start hatching in these queen cells. You take the little queen cages out after they've hatched, and you put them into queen cages, and you can sell the queens. You can mount them in a nuke box, a hive split, graft them onto a cell or a frame, and begin requeening again. The JZB system is a good system, and most beekeepers use it, and it sells for around the $60 to $80. You can even use this system, what we call grafting larvae, and insert larvae right into the queen cups on the base mounts, eliminating the queen part of the cage. Most people do this with splitting hives and uh, using a grafting tool. Uh, well, grafting tools like a little dental hygiene hook. You reach down, and when you see one or two-day-old larvae, you just kind of hook them out, put them directly in the queen cups, and put them into the nuke boxes, allowing the bees to build the peanut shells, putting the queen cages over them, and starting all over again. Grafting larvae is uh, when you pull the larvae out of the cell, and queen grafting is where you put the peanut right on a frame of brood. So it would be like a natural graft where they've made a peanut shell. Anytime you're queening, you need to make sure the larva has been laid longer, no longer than three days. After three days, they will not turn into queens. They won't feed them the, the necessary um, royal jelly for the, to only make queens. So make sure you check your BZ systems and this grafting system if you're going to be using larva at least every two days to make sure that you're getting good brand new little rice larva. There are many other methods of queening, and one of the best ones is called the Miller queening method. It works very well, and I teach it in a class. Uh, it's a more natural method of making queens, and it's very hard to explain uh, and to see it in your head. But what you're going to do is you're going to cut foundation into long strips with triangle points on the end. And when the bees build comb, they build comb down the strips, and they start laying larvae and... Since the strips have spaces in between them, they start building peanut shells on the sides of the strips. And this is a natural way of making queens. Uh, it's, a, it's a good natural way. Uh, I use this method with the hole punch method. And what I'm doing is I'm taking uh, these Miller queening methods and adding my own queen cups and punching out larvae and putting them in the queen cups. So the bees will... Uh, will make natural peanut combs off these cups that I've made. Now, here's, uh, here's how I usually do my, my system. I uh, build a nuke box. I pull out two frames of brood. A uh, frame of brood that's full on both sides is about one and a half pounds of bees. So if you pull two full frames, that's three pounds of bees that will hatch. So you put two full uh, frames of cat brood in the nuke two full frames of uh, honey, dump some bees in there, and then uh, put it in this Miller queening frame. And you have just eliminated uh, 
swarming because you're eliminating bees that would hatch in a hive, and you've made a, a new split. And you can do a beehive twice this way, making two splits and requeening with this method. The whole punch method is the most natural way of grafting larvae out of a cell. Now here's, here's the system. I put the cut comb of the Miller method queening, but on both sides, when they build it where they'd make the larva, I rub a pencil up and down the sides, killing all the larva. And the hole punch method, uh, I go ahead and I take a 3 8 copper ferrule uh, that you would use for crimping pipe, and I solder it to a 9-inch long coat hanger. So it's a little rod with a circle on the bottom. And I take my frame of larva. I use a foundationless comb top bar, and it's one to two day old larva. And the best way is to take the queen cup, heat it up just a little bit, and mount it on the side of the Miller frames. And how I make my queen cups is I take a 5 sixteenths inch wooden dowel, cut it about 9 inches long, sand out the end so it's round, and I dip it in hot wax, beeswax, for about a half inch, just like you would be dipping uh, a wick for candles. And I dip it in and out, and I make a queen cup. And I just pull them off the end of the dowel, and I fill a baby food jar full of them. I uh, make my Miller cuts. I heat up these queen cups, and I put them on the edge. And I usually get four to five on each triangle of the Miller cut. And I take my little three-eighths-inch ferrule on my coat hanger and my new, brand-new larva, and I just punch out larva. And I pinch off all the larva around the edge so there's only one larva in the punch in the center. And I just slip them in my queen cups. So it's almost like the Jay-Z, BZ system, but I'm doing it all with uh, at home. I'm not buying anything. I'm using my own natural beeswax on a wooden dowel to make the cups. I'm using natural cut brood method for population. And I'm adding my queen cups and punching out their larva and putting it in. So I'm not... I'm not manipulating anything. I'm just moving them in directions for them to make queens. And you usually can get about 30 queens out of one of these systems that are going to be big, nice peanuts, that there's enough space that you're spacing them to grow and to do really well. I know it really sounds kind of crazy to hear a hole punching and stuff, but I've included a lot of links in, in here for Jack to send to you guys so you guys can visually see some of the video, read some of the information, and kind of get a grasp on it. A couple books you should pick up is Lawrence J. Connor uh, does uh, essential books. Uh, he's got Queen Ring Essentials, Increased Essentials, which shows nucleus box stacking. It's one of the methods I use. You can also get uh, Sustainability Management and Ecology, Swarm Essentials by Stephen J. Uh, Ripke. Uh, those are some really good books. You can find them on Amazon or go to your local library sometime and support written knowledge sometime. Get in there reading. Uh, queening is a necessary aspect when you're going. And you said you've been beekeeping now, that you're two boxes for three years, and you're ready, you're ready to learn how to make queens. And I think if you look into these systems and start practicing them, start with the JZ BZ system, Start learning how that works and then move into this hole punch method where you're doing it on your own and doing more natural splitting and nukes. Uh, you're going to get way better populations and way better bees. Hey, thank all of you for listening uh, and letting me into your lives. I hope I've been some help to some new beekeepers and old. I also want to say to my fellow citizens, happy Independence Day to you all. May your country be stronger, a new beacon of light for those that are oppressed, and may free men and women choose a better way of life here. 
Remember to keep the kids in mind over the holidays and be safe on the roads on your traveling weekend. I am the Bee Whisper, and I'm wishing you many blessings over this Independence Holiday. Next up, I have a question for Gary Collins. Uh, very good stuff from the uh, the Bee Whisperer, Michael Jordan, as, as to his comments on our Independence Day. Uh, very, very eloquent, and I will save my comments on our Independence Day for the end of the show. Uh, question, though, for Gary Collins from Kyle. He's wanting to test out a 72-hour bag, and he's going on a backpacking trip. Wanted to know what to pack for his new lifestyle and primal power method. Looking for something he can pack and leave in the bag long periods of time and not going to require refrigeration or special needs. He knows nuts are good, but should only make up about 10% of his diet. Any help would be appreciated. Thanks. Hey, this is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. And today I'm going to be discussing how to stay primal on your outdoor adventures. Kyle had a great question about uh, he knows he can take nuts on the primal diet, paleo primal diet on his trip, but what else can he take that doesn't require refrigeration or any kind of special needs and is durable? And nuts are great, but I'll give you an alternative to that as well is almond butter. And you can find it in six to you know twelve ounce containers, even sixteen ounce uh, plastic, of course. I usually don't recommend plastic, but if you're backpacking, obviously you don't want glass breaking in your backpack. The good thing about almond butter is it's the same weight as the nuts, obviously, that you grind up, but it takes up much less space. And it's very much more dense in nutritional value. And it's great for backpacking. You can go two, three days. It doesn't really need to be refrigerated. It'll be fine during that time frame. Obviously, extended trips, you're going to want to cool it or refrigerate it or it'll go, it'll go bad on you. But usually you get a, about a week out of it. Um, also, great packing and actually travel anywhere is jerky. Um, I now have a line of grass-fed jerky, grass-fed beef sticks, and also chicken cranberry bites. And I carry those because I eat them. That's why where my products come from a lot. I use them and then I sell them to you guys. Uh, that's how uh, I come up with my ideas. But uh, the for backpacking, the chicken cranberry bites are really good because they have the natural sugars in the cranberries. So you get a little more carbs. Um, that way you can uh, replenish the glycogen stores as you're, you know, burning so many calories throughout the day. Um, the others, you know, jerky, you know, it's high protein, obviously. It doesn't go bad. You can keep it in your backpack. Takes up a l very little space. The beef sticks are great, too. Um, some other things that I'll usually take with me are dehydrated fruit. Um, but you got to be careful with that. You know, don't get that stuff from, you know, like Trader Joe's or the grocery store. They just hammer it with sugar, added sugar. Uh, the best way is to do it yourself. You can actually dehydrate fruits and, and meats right in your oven. You just turn it down to the lowest setting, throw it in there, season it, do whatever you want to it, and it will dehydrate it. You don't have to have a fancy dehydrator, even though they do work better. Uh, also, apples. Apples are great. I use them all the time. Yeah, they'll bruise, uh, but they're very durable. And heat will not affect them during the short term. And bruises aren't bad. That means nothing. Uh, you can eat the bruise and it's fine. It's not going to kill you. Uh, you can even eat the worm, but don't. We won't go into that. That's all I need is a liability claim. But uh, yeah, those are some of the best foods. And also I have found a great new product 
That is paleo. You guys are going to love this. I've interviewed them recently. It's Paleo Meals to Go. And one of the the creators of it, he's a avid outdoorsman. And he's paleo, and he couldn't figure out. There was nothing out there. All the freeze-dried meals, MREs, they were all just non-paleo compliant. Ton of grains, ton of beans. And uh, they're uh, anywhere from a range of 3 ounces to 4.5 ounces, and they're freeze-dried. Uh, they're all paleo. Uh, some are breakfast. They have a mixture of breakfast and then also dinner, lunch. The breakfast ones are high carb and have uh, quite a bit of sugar in them. Not a lot, comparably. But those are great on backpacking because you're burning so many calories. So it's okay to take something like that with you when you're doing something like that. Um, I, I highly recommend them. Again, it's paleo meals to go. Freeze-dried, all you do, you can eat them. I've eaten them uh, without putting any water in them. I just chomp on them, freeze-dried. I hope that helps. Uh, there's not you know, a whole lot of selection when it comes to backpacking and taking foods with you. But there's a, a core group, and those are the core group I always take with me. I mean, when you're out for two, three, four days hunting, tracking, whatever, they work perfect. Also, you can also, anyone who, you know, you hunt yourself, the easy way is just to dehydrate your own meat. Um, take it with you. It's perfect, you know, and uh, I've we've done that in the past. And uh, you can forage, but you better know what the heck you're doing. That's all you need to do is poison yourself out there and get really sick. So, again, hope that helps and answers some of your questions. If you have any other, make sure to send them to Jack or me. And I'll answer them for you. Great stuff from Gary. I want to reiterate something he said, too, though, kind of in passing there about, you know, it's okay to eat certain things that maybe you normally wouldn't eat when you're at certain activity levels. Um, Like, there's times when, like, we are involved in outdoor activities and we're just busting ass or hiking or something like that. And I will eat certainly more carbohydrates or things that even lean toward the junk food side when I'm at that physical activity level because I know it doesn't really matter. That doesn't mean because you're hiking down a trail you can go shoving 14 bags of M&Ms in your face. That's that's not what I'm saying. If you eat enough of anything, no matter your activity level, you end up in surplus with it, you can end up with problems. Or even if it's not necessarily surplus, you end up running enough through your body that you, that you end up with issues from anti-nutritional factors and things like that. But... If you're busting hump all day long and you eat a sandwich with two pieces of bread, unless you have a, a something like celiacs or something like that, it's not that big a deal. Uh, now, this is where people, I think, make a real confusion, though, about the paleo method. And they say, well, you know, they, they probably didn't, you know, it didn't really matter or they were in better shape because they were so active. Our paleolithic a- ancestors were quite uh, athletic I, I, in appearance based on our knowledge of the, the Paleolithic record and, and what have you. But they were not active all the time. They were not. None of our Paleo ancestors said, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to go over that tree where that low line limb is. I'm going to do 20, 20 chin ups, uh, five sets of 20 chin ups, and, and then I'm going to go do some push ups and, or what have you, or spent all day long running, or spent all day long wrestling a bear or anything else. They actually had very sedentary periods of their lives with high-level activity. And this is why, as I look at fitness training, some of the stuff I find the most encouraging or most useful is the stuff that's brief period high intensity. Because this is how the human body evolved. Now, 
We have the ability to run longer distances than most animals. I don't think most people realize that. And one of the ways that, that, that Paleolithic man and, and tribal man, even up until now, has used that ability is by running animals literally till they just give up or they turn and fight and then they, they take them out with spears or clubs or whatever. That doesn't mean that we evolved to do that. That means that we evolved for other things to do things like to be able to cool our bodies, to have bigger brains, to be able to think, and then we took all of those things and we figured out, hey, these animals work this way, we work this way, by using the human unit we can make this happen. Um, I think the human is really physio physiologically meant to be a hunter-gatherer. That's how we evolved for our longest period of time. And that meant that we hunted only when we really needed to. We put up some stores, but basically we hunted as we needed, we gathered as we needed, we formed individual bands, and that natural uh, formation of the human hunter-gatherer band led to villages of you know somewhere between average of 50 to 200 people. And that I think we actually would be emotionally, spiritually, and physically better off if we tried to do the best we can to live with community more like that today, rather than six million people all crammed together eating fast food. That's just my thoughts on that. Anyway, let's go on and take the next one. The next question is for Erica Strauss. Erica, uh, can you discuss botulism and home canning uh, safety and what people need to know about the real risk with botulism? There's a lot of canning about to happen across the country as gardens are getting into peak production all the way in through fall this year. A lot of people listening to the show taking up canning for the first time. That's, that's one of the bigger concerns that you can screw up and end up with botulism, and it's extremely toxic. So can you give us more on what botulism is, how do we avoid it, and what the real risks are? Hi, Jack. This is Erica from Northwest Edible, here to lay down some simple rules about how to make sure your home canned foods are always safe and botulism-free. Canning is one of those things that's easy once you've done it a few times, but can be very intimidating to learn. I talk to a lot of beginning canners, and 99 times out of 100, if someone's scared to start or to try home canning for the first time, it comes down to one thing, botulism. I can't tell you the number of canning-curious folks who are absolutely terrified that they are going to kill their entire family if they attempt to can some strawberry jam. All of this fear comes from not understanding what botulism is and how it works. So like so many things in life, ignorance about what we're dealing with leads to this misplaced fear. The truth is that botulism is very rare. And if you take a few really common sense precautions, it's never something you need to worry about. So let me break down exactly what home canners need to know about botulism, how to prevent any kind of poisoning in their canned foods, and what the community should do to make sure that botulism is never something that ruins their picnic or their family's dinner. So botulism itself is a toxin. If this toxin gets into your body, you get botulism poisoning. You really, really don't want botulism poisoning. The toxin itself basically stops the nerves that control your muscles from being able to talk to each other. And so you basically gradually lose muscular control, including the muscles that compress your lungs and make it possible for you to breathe. With fast and effective medical treatment, botulism is generally not fatal. But because the toxin permanently damages those nerves, survivors of botulism poisoning can require ventilators or years of physical therapy. So even if this isn't something that outright kills you, which it certainly can, it is something you don't want to get. 
But the important thing to understand is that botulism doesn't just occur. It's a waste product from a bacterium called Clostridium botulinum. So think about yeast, right? Yeast makes alcohol as a waste product in the right environment. C. botulinum is kind of the same way. It makes the botulism protein, which is a toxin for us, as a waste product in the right environment. Of course, botulism toxin is way, way less fun than booze, which is why Clostridium botulinum has a much worse reputation than yeast. The active growing form of Clostridium botulinum that makes the botulism toxin is not particularly scary. As a bacteria, he can be killed with boiling water, bleach, antibacterial scrubs, all of the typical kind of things you would do to get rid of bacteria. But Clostridium botulinum has this terrible, terrible party trick. He's an obligate anaerobe. That means he can only live in his actively growing form in an environment without oxygen, completely oxygen-free. If C. botulinum senses oxygen showing up, he jettisons off every bit of DNA he doesn't actively need, wraps himself up in an impenetrable protective suit, and goes super dormant. In this form, he's called a spore, and he's basically unkillable. Boiling water, freezing, bleach, all those kind of things that are very effective against vegetative active C. botulinum don't even touch spore C. botulinum. The best analogy I can give to this is that if active vegetative C. botulinum is like Tony Stark, then spore C. botulinum is kind of like Iron Man. He's wrapped in this like armor suit that nothing's getting through. So the bad news is these spores, these botulism spores, they're everywhere. They're in your garden, in your house, in your carpet, in the dust that blows in from your neighbor's fields. They're very ubiquitous. The good news is these spores themselves are totally harmless. They don't make the botulism toxin. However, if these harmless spores end up in an environment that is hospitable, they can germinate back to their vegetative active stage. And in this state, they can start to make that botulism toxin. What does this have to do with canning? Well, it turns out that spore botulinum needs a few things to reanimate back to his dangerous form where he can produce that botulism toxin. First, he needs an anaerobic environment. Remember, no oxygen. All properly canned food is by definition anaerobic. The processing itself drives air out of the jar, and this is one of the primary things that makes canned foods long-lasting and shelf-stable. So, one for one for botulism. That's scary, right? Second, he needs a moderate temperature. Anything from around 40 degrees to up a few degrees past room temperature favors the germination and growth of C. botulinum. Canned foods are typically kept at room temperature, so that's two for two for C. botulinum. So that's scary. Third, he needs a low acid or near neutral pH environment. In a high pH, strong acid environment, the botulinum spores never germinate and so can never become dangerous. Nearly all fruits are naturally high acid, and so they are perfectly safe to can without worry of botulism. Strawberry jam, blackberry jam, candela peaches, that kind of stuff is not a botulism risk because the pH of those foods is simply too low to allow the botulinum spores to germinate in the first place. In canning, the magic cutoff safety line is a pH of 4.6 or below. Anything 4.6 or below is considered strong acid. 
almost all fruits fit this pH description. There are a few fruits, including figs, very ripe pears, pineapples, and some tropical fruits, and perhaps one of the most common canned fruits. Tomatoes, which are right on that line of low acid, and so to safely can these, we give ourselves a little margin of error, and we artificially bump up the acid by adding a little bit of lemon juice to those foods when we can them. Okay, so now you understand how in canning low acid and high acid pH foods, understanding those is absolutely critical to making sure you're canning safely. But many of us home study types, we're not content with just a few jars of jam. We want to be able to can our garden vegetables or the meat we hunt. We like the convenience of shelf stable DIY canned black or garbanzo beans. We like to make our own chili con carne or soups or other meals in a jar for convenience. The problem is all these items—vegetables, meat, seafood, dry beans—they are low acid. When we can these items, we create an absolutely ideal environment for spore botulinum to unpack and set up house in our jars. Low acid canned food is three for three for botulism. It's anaerobic, room temperature, and near neutral pH. So with these low acid foods, we have two choices: we can add enough acid to the food to force the pH down low enough that the spores themselves will never germinate. This is called pickling, and it's perfectly safe. Add enough vinegar to your cucumbers or beets, and they are totally safe to can as dill pickles or pickled beets. When you acidulate low acid foods like this, you really need to follow a trustworthy, approved recipe so that you know you're adding enough acid to bring that food down to the magic safe pH range of 4.6 or below. Our other option is to raise the temperature of the canned foods so far above boiling that even the spore of C. botulinum itself eventually gives up and dies. Now, this isn't that easy. You can't do it in a normal pot. Uh, the temperature of the water in the pot will never get above the boiling point, so you need a special tool called a pressure canner. I don't really have a lot of time to go into the details of a pressure canner, but do know that it is not the same as a pressure. Cooker. A pressure canner works by safely bringing the temperature of the food up inside the jars to above 240 degrees Fahrenheit. At this temperature, if kept at 240 degrees Fahrenheit for long enough, even the spores themselves will die. When pressure canning, it's absolutely critical that you not shortcut the time of the processing. Pressure canning a pint of meat, for example, takes 75 minutes, and if you shortcut the processing time because you think a half hour is good enough and you're in a hurry or something, you run the risk of leaving some of those botulinum spores unkilled, which could lead to botulism toxin developing in your jar down the road. So, at the end of the day, here's what you need to remember: high acid foods are always safe to water bath can. They will not allow the botulism spore to germinate, and therefore no toxin will ever develop. Low acid vegetables can be safely acidified, but you must use the right amount of acid, such as vinegar or citrus juice, to ensure your pH is on point. Follow an approved recipe. Play it safe. Lastly, low acid, unpickled foods like meat, dry beans, soups, stocks, sweet corn, that kind of stuff, can only safely be canned. In a pressure canner, no exceptions and no shortcutting processing time. So, if you follow these guidelines and you use approved recipes, I'll send Jack a few resources that you can trust for safe, tested recipes. Then you never need to worry about botulism. You're never going to poison your family, and you can go forth and conquer canning without fear. 
Okay, guys, happy canning. Happy 4th of July. Jack, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to help the community keep themselves safe this canning season. Again, my name is Erica from Northwest Edible, and I am here to answer all of your questions on food preservation, urban homesteading, and productive homekeeping. So keep those questions coming, and I will talk to you next time. I want to add that uh, there's an article on Erica's blog called How Not to Die from Botulism, and... Uh, It's factually how not to die from botulism, what home canners need to know about the world's most deadly toxin. And I've looked up that article for you and included a link in today's show notes so that you can uh, review that if you wish. Our next question is for Brian Black. Bob in Lano, Texas says, I have a question for Brian. My wife and I live on seven roll acres on a dirt road well off the main highway. What kind of measures should we take to prepare for burglary or home invasion robbery? Hey, TSP, this is Brian Black with a question for the expert counsel, or actually an answer for the expert counsel from uh, Bob in Lano, Texas, who has a question about living on seven rural acres on a dirt road well off the main highway and what kind of measures that they should take to prepare for a burglary or home invasion. Um, first off, Bob, thanks for the question. Um, while I'm sure you didn't mean this to be such a loaded question, it really is. There's there's so much um that we could cover. I mean, I'm only limited to a few minutes here, but I'm going to do my best with it. Um, I would highly recommend you read the article on our website um, about some tips that you can uh, use to protect yourself and your family uh, against home invasions because it does tie into the, uh, the theft aspect of these things too. So I'll make sure Jack gets the link for that. But uh, so anyway, what you really need to understand about this is that um, – a burglar is going to be there for different reasons than somebody looking to attack you and your family with a home invasion. So um, whereas a burglar will typically just wait for you to leave the house, um, someone that's looking to harm you or your family or extort you or something like that, um, basically the reasons for a home invasion um, will be following your daily patterns and they'll know exactly where you're going to and things like that. So it's it's a little more of a dangerous situation and one that uh, you should definitely protect yourself against a little more than just a common uh, a common theft. So things like, uh, you know, learning how to escape from zip ties and knowing how to defeat some types of legal restraint or most types of legal restraint or would be, would be great things to take on board for um, countering a home invasion. Uh, whereas, you know, a burglary, um, some of these things will play into that too, but, um, in terms of kind of securing your property, just some some quick things that, you know, I can just name off the top of my head that you can do. Um, I suggest at least some type of system that's going to give you an early warning of somebody coming onto your property. So, you know, being on seven acres, it's quite a large um, piece of property uh, compared to, you know, kind of where we live here uh, on our property in Texas. But uh, so anyway, some type of, I mean, you can get like a mirror's driveway alarm at the basic level. Um, you can upgrade to security cameras that, you know, have a footage. You can even use trail cameras that are, that are activated on motion. Um, there's, there's a, a wide range of things that, uh, that you can use, but the main goal is to get something to, to notify you of somebody being on your property. That, that would probably be the biggest thing that, that I would recommend. Um, secondary to that is, you know, upgrading your home. Um, making sure that you leave the lights on, you know, investing in a, a good dog that's going to patrol the, the area, um, leaving a pair of size 13s at the door so somebody thinks that you know, someone's home all the time, um, getting beware of dog signs, no trespassing signs. All those little things are just buying you 
time and, uh, you know, decreasing the opportunity in the mind of a, uh, of somebody that's looking to do you harm or, or rob you. So, um, just like I, I kind of say all the time is that, you know, all security is just buying time. So that's what, that's the important aspect of this too. So, um, I'd highly recommend investing in something like a, a door devil or some type of anti-kick protection for your exterior doors. You might want to look at some anti-break film for your glass. Um, there's a there's a whole host of things that you can do to uh, to upgrade your home like that. But hopefully that gives you a good idea of just some basics. Um, again, I'd highly recommend that article on ICS to uh, to get you a little more familiar with uh, everything that I could have said on this episode. But I'll save for just kind of referring you to an article because I've definitely written it all before. But uh, anyway, thanks for the question and definitely keep them coming. Uh, remember to check out ICS for your daily dose of skill sets and resources to help you explore your world and prevail against all threats. Thanks for having me, guys. www.itstactical.com. My next question is uh, for John Pugliano. This is for me, and it's that automation is becoming one of the big trends, and it's one of the big trends you've been watching for a long time. We agree on that. We've both discussed it before. I'd like you to discuss it further, and I'd also like your thoughts on my my stance uh, as to this. Um, I think that all of this hoopla about fast food workers demanding $15 an hour is why there's automation coming to McDonald's is just nonsense. I think it's one of the dumber things I've ever seen claimed. I think it's just basically everybody looking for somewhere to hide when the reality of this comes through. I don't think anybody really understands how big this is yet uh, in the mainstream, especially in the public. And I think that there's going to be a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth and that the politicians, the industries, etc. are all already bunkering up and looking to point the finger and say, who's to blame for this? Because I think it's just happening because it makes sense. What say you, John? Automation is one of the top trends that I've been studying for some time now. In fact, I regard it as among the top two or three trends that will have the most significant impact on the world economy over the next generation or so. As to Jack's stance that all the recent publicity about automation at fast food restaurants has nothing to do with the minimum wage debate and that automation is going to occur regardless, I think he's absolutely correct. Let me give you two examples that illustrate the significance of automation and how it's affecting workers at both extremes of the pay scale. Let's start with a very low-skilled, low-wage worker, someone like a migrant farm worker that picks strawberries. These workers will eventually be replaced by automated material handling machines that are specifically designed for specialty agricultural applications that require very careful picking and handling of fragile produce and fruits like strawberries or tomatoes. I'll provide Jack with a link to two applications. One of them is a prototype machine called Agribot, and the other will be to a company that's currently commercially available. It's called Harvest Automation. The machines that these companies are trying to bring to market are very affordable, The large combine harvester types are in the range of $100,000, and with that, one or two operators will be able to do the work of dozens of unskilled laborers, so it's very cost-effective. And in fact, some of the smaller machines that do less critical work, like just moving around potted plants, well, they're commercially available for something in the range of like $2,000. So this is extremely affordable, and it's going to be innovation that lowers the cost of agricultural products by replacing human labor. This type of innovation has been occurring throughout human history. You can think back to the 1790s when the cotton gin was developed and the effect that had on cotton production in the southern states. Well, now let's look at the other end of the pay scale. 
Let's think about a doctor like an anesthesiologist that's not only highly educated but also highly skilled. To be a board-certified anesthesiologist, you're probably looking at uh, 10 or 12 years of post-secondary education. And because their services are in high demand, they're very well compensated. The average anesthesiologist salary is somewhere above $250,000. But just like the unskilled farm labor worker or the fast food restaurant worker, highly educated, highly skilled doctors are also being threatened by automation. I'll give you one example. Johnson & Johnson has developed a machine called Cetasys, and this machine is designed to 100% replace the services of a human anesthesiologist. Now, this machine has been very controversial. There have been a lot of concerns raised about its safety and reliability. When J&J first tried to launch the system in 2010, they were denied FDA approval. But because this is such a lucrative area, they kept at it and eventually gained FDA approval in 2013. And now just this year, the system is commercially available. Its use is being limited to sedation during colonoscopies, which are considered a minimally invasive procedure. It's believed that once this gains acceptance in a simple procedure like colonoscopies, it'll be quickly expanded to more complex applications because it offers incredible cost savings. There's also evidence that there may be a direct impact to patient health because the machine has such precise monitoring that less anesthesia can be used. But in any case, the sheer cost savings will eventually drive the implementation of this type of system to many surgical applications. So who wouldn't be happy about that? Well, of course, the American Society of Anesthesiologists isn't very happy about it. They don't want to be replaced by a machine, and so they'll fight it tooth and nail. But in the end, it won't matter. Automation and technical innovation are going to affect all of our lives. It'll determine not only how we earn our income, but where we choose to live and what type of companies we want to invest in for our retirement. So stay tuned for future episodes, and Jack and I will be providing you with updates as they occur. If you'd like to hear more about my commentary on the stock market and general wealth building principles, don't forget to check out my podcast, Wealthsteading. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth, wishing everybody a fantastic Independence Day. Um, and what I can say is it's only, it's only starting, guys. This is um, going to change the fabric of the world. That's what automation is going to do. Is it's going to change the fabric of the world. There's going to be so many things that we think of as both skilled and unskilled labor that will continuously be eroded. Um, and for good and for, for ill. I mean, if you look at um, agriculture, we come up with something like a machine that can pick oranges, that can determine exactly when to pick what orange, what have you. And we right now we have people say, talking about how how poorly treated and how hardworking uh, immigrant labor is that picks oranges in South Florida. And if you actually look at what they do, it, it's it's a terrible job. There's there's a reason people are doing it that uh, are outside the system because the people inside the system don't want to do it. Um, I, I hear people get on you know immigrants all the time, and my question is, where are you when it comes to doing the jobs that they're doing? And what people will say is, well, you know, if it paid better, the reason it doesn't pay well is because they're doing it. Bullshit. I mean, just flat out bullshit. Um, pickers on these arts plantations make good money if they're good, and if they're not good, they don't end up being there very long. They make better money than a lot of people that say, uh, you know, I would do it if it paid better. And well, they're making more money than you. I mean, we want to think about all these people as you know working for you know below minimum wage or something like that. They're not. Um, so there's good pickers making twenty to twenty five dollars an hour, 
And, and the people that say that's not enough money are making, you know, like 11, uh, you know, stocking a shelf at Costco or something like that. Why? Because they don't want to do the work. They don't want the sacrifice. They don't want to have to travel. Whatever it is, they don't want to do the work. And it would take an awful lot to get them out there doing it. So you've got people filling that need because no one else will. But what happens when that poor person has to do that horrible job, doesn't have that horrible job to do anymore? And we're going to see this over and over and over again. It's, it's going to be things that are immune to this are going to be highly creative, entertainment, artisan and craftsmanship. Uh, production of food, I think, will still have a lot of value at the local food level, at the beyond organic level. Because none of this automation stuff is designed to work with, you know, natural, organic permaculture systems. But just understand that that's only because that's not how mainstream works right now. It could. It absolutely could. We can put in civil pasture systems with chestnuts and apples, etc., and have machines do almost everything. We could, in time, fully automate even things like rotational grazing, and the cow will go where the fence lets it go. So the person that always messes that up is the individual in the system. So there's almost nothing. There's almost nothing that in time we can't replace with automation. And we need to start thinking about what are people going to do in that world? Because not everybody's going to fix the robots, which was always the thing that I heard when I was a kid. Well, you know, somebody will have to work on the robots. Well, they're even making robots that can make and work on robots. And robots are not going to be what we have in our little fantasy mind, you know, the, the, the butler that speaks, you know, 27 languages like C-3PO and talks to you or whatever. No. Um, in fact, C-3PO spoke like 6 million languages or something. But you know what I'm saying. It's That's not the type of robots we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about a robot that knows when to flip a burger, how to put it on a bun, And when you push, I want extra ketchup and no mustard, gets it right. Now, let me tell you something about fast food workers in that. The robot will get it right more than they do. Period. This is, this is a trend, and again, it is not. It is not about $15 in a union for McDonald's workers. And if you believe that, this system is controlling you, and you're going to get steamrolled by it because you're not going to pay attention to the important parts of it and figure out how to adapt. And if you're 25, you better pay attention to this. If you're 45, you should pay attention to it. But if you're 25, you really better pay attention to this. Because there's a lot of opportunities this is going to create for us. But there's going to be an awful lot of doors closed as well. With that, let's go ahead and take a question for our next expert council member. This one is for Wheaton. Yes, Paul Wheaton. I won't play the... the, the uh, The Will Wheaton clip uh, from Big Bang again. It would just get old if I did it every week. But Paul Wheaton uh, is going to give us an update from Wheaton Laboratories and the dukedom of Wheatonville. Mr. Wheaton, what say you? What's going on up in the wilds of Montana? Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permuse.com with another report of what's going on at Wheaton Laboratories. Um, we have a PDC still going on. It finishes up tomorrow, so that was a two-week PDC. Uh, we're going to be uh, looking at everybody's uh, designs that they made uh, as part of the course and handing out a bunch of official PRI certifications. Uh, Thomas Elpel, the author of Botany in a Day, uh, was here. He is also the author of several books on, and DVDs on primitive skills and uh, building structures from stone using a slip form. Uh, during the PDC, we had an herbal school uh, class came out for the day, and then, of course, they were all bonkers about meeting Thomas Elpel. 
So uh, we had a big crowd here for one day. Um, I'm going to use up the rest of the time because right now a lot of our effort is going into the PDC. Uh, and so I'm going to use up a little bit of our time right now to uh, talk about how to stay cool. Uh, so uh, we're already kind of exercising a few of these things. And I know that, that your peeps already know a lot about the, the standard stuff about how to stay cool. So I'm going to focus on just the permaculture stuff. First, I want to say that uh, currently we have two Wafatis here. And when you go inside, they're very, very cool. So it'll be 100 degrees outside, and it'll be 75 degrees inside. Um, the biggest permaculture technique to stay cool is trees. The bigger, the better. Giant trees. I mean, if you've ever stood at the foot of a really giant tree, you could just feel this river of cool pouring down on you from the middle of the tree. Uh, thermal mass, just... If you just had a giant rock or a giant collection of rocks inside of your home, it would help to keep your home cool. Now, most people aren't going to do that, but we have 10 rocket mass heaters here. And so uh, what people have been doing is that uh, uh, in the day when it starts to get hot, everybody wants to sit on the rocket mass heater because it's it's main, it's, it's averaging out the heat from the day. So it's it's, you know, carrying some of the cool, if you will, from the previous evening. Um, layers of shade over the walls and the roof, as well as the windows. Uh, you could use burlap is really cheap. Uh, some people use uh, bamboo or reed blinds, but, uh, if you have, if you put just one layer on, it cools the wall, which then cools the rest of the house. And if you do two layers, it's, it's actually cooler still, but you got to have, um, uh, uh, air movement between the layers. And another big one that we have here is that we use hay box cooking. And so we've got a large wooden box. Inside the box is a bunch of sheep's wool. And uh, we'll get something hot on the stove, and then we move it outside into the hay box cooker. Uh, we've done it a few times where we'd put something in that was boiling, so at 212 degrees, and 12 hours later we'd pull it back out, and it was still about 160 to 180 degrees. So uh, uh, you can get, all, get lots of cooking done outside without using inter- any energy, and uh, uh, some people will have their hay box cooker inside, and it's still something where it stays relatively cool inside. But ours is mounted outside. So anyway, that's the news for now. Uh, hopefully when the PDC is over, we'll get back to lots of uh, big projects and innovations. Uh, we've got like about 15 things lined up. Uh, talk to you later, Jack. Every time I hear an update from my buddy Paul, I just want to get on an airplane and fly to Montana and go hang out with them for a couple days. I really do. Um, if Montana were only closer and I had more hours in a day and more days in a week, I think I would be up there very soon. But I am going to the beach is where I'm going to soon, guys. Anyway, next question is uh, for Tim Glantz. This is from Jacob. And Jacob says, Tim, can you walk us through what one needs to know about setting up a network using Milserp field phones? What phone options are out there, and what is the best value per dollar in military phone surplus stuff? Hi, Jack. Tim Glance here with Old Grouch's Surplus with an answer for Jacob's question about military field phones. Uh, first, let's go over a little bit about what a field phone is. A field phone is a telephone uh, that is essentially 1915 to 1930s technology, uh, still in use by the military today, that allows you to communicate via a portable phone. You still have to lay wire down. 
and the wire is important to why they still use it. But you lay the wire out anywhere in a remote location and you have a telephone between the places. And the reason the military still likes them is, is several fold. Number one, they're very simple. Number two, they have extremely low battery drain. Uh, there are even some sound-powered ones I'll get into later, but the ones that use batteries, typically uh, a set of batteries will last you between three and six months of use because they have very little drain and they only use power when you're actually pushing a push-to-talk. Uh, they're secure. They don't transmit like a radio does, so the enemy or anybody else out there can't eavesdrop on you, and they also can't use radio direction finding to find you. And the only way they could actually listen in is if they were to come in, find your wire, tap into it, and hook their own phone and be listening. So for all these reasons, they're still in use by most militaries today. Uh, the way you network them, well, first I'll describe how they work. Uh, basically, it works like the old-timey phone you've seen in the old movies, where somebody cranks the telephone and it rings on the other end. And then the other party answers. And where they differed from the old-timey phones is that these do have a push-to-talk button like a radio does. And this is done instead of having full duplex where you can just talk back and forth, mostly to preserve battery life. Because this way you're only draining batteries when you're actually pushing the push-to-talk button. So the most basic network you can set up with them is simply two phones. And you have a two-conductor wire, and you can use any two-conductor wire. You can use military field phone wire. You can use actual telephone wire. You can use speaker wire. Or one of the most popular things I recommend is, is find some old Cat5 cable. I mean, Cat5 computer networking cable is out there, and... A lot of times people that work in IT will glad you gladly give you some. You know, here I got plenty. I got this you know, 100 feet left on this roll. It's too short. You can have it. And it works fine. Just to pick any two wires or pick two twisted pairs on there and hook them together. The wires will run between two phones in the most basic network. You have two terminals on each phone and you simply hook one conductor to each terminal. When I crank one phone, the other one's going to ring. It gets a little more complicated if I want to add a third or any other number phones to the system. The simplest way to do that is what's known as a hot loop. And with a hot loop, you have your first and your last phone on the network hooked up just like you would if you only had two phones. Then, for every phone additionally that's going to be in between those, you take one of those two conductor wires and you cut it in half. You strip the ends on it to make bare wires on both both sides of it. Then you hook the each one of those ends to the two terminals on your phone, like you're using the phone to bridge the cut you just made. And you do that for each additional phone you want to insert into your loop. Once you've done that, your hot loop will be ready to use. And when you crank any phone in any position on that hot loop, all the phones will ring. Then, when people pick up, everybody can hear whatever anybody who is talking and pushing the push to talk can, can say. Uh, it's very much like the old-style party line lines that used to be in rural America where five or six homes would share a phone line. And if somebody else was using the phone when you picked it up, you heard them. And when you got a call, you had different rings. Somebody might have two longs for their ring, and that was their house. Somebody might have a long and a short. Somebody might have a long and two shorts. 
and you can actually do use that same ringing technique in a hot loop to designate a party uh, that you want, you know, a certain phone you want to pick up. Where the hot loop can be handy, say you've got a farm and you've got a bunch of buildings on it and you want to put these phones in each building to run as an intercom. Well, you put the hot loop through and then when you crank one of them, it'll ring in all of them. Let's say you want to think about you've gotten together with your neighbors and you're in an area that's prone to, you know, hurricanes or something like that and you've got a security plan for your neighborhood that involves people standing watching, you know, limiting traffic in case of looters coming down in. You can have a field phone out at the entrance to the neighborhood where your checkpoint is and then run a hot loop to every house in that neighborhood. And if there's trouble, somebody cranks, everybody knows to come out. And then you can assign a ring just like a party line. So if the neighbors want to talk to each other, if you want to talk to Bob across the street, you know his ring is three longs. You ring three longs, you know, everybody else can ignore it and he'll pick up. The third method of networking is actually using a field phone switchboard. Uh, if you've ever watched MASH, you've seen radar running the switchboard. Uh, the downsides to this is it's expensive, number one, to find a switchboard because there are not many out there. And number two, somebody has to man that switchboard anytime you want the network to work. But when that happens, uh, you can either have an individual phone on a circuit on that switchboard or a hot loop on that switchboard. Somebody dials into the operator says who they want to connect to, the op switchboard operator physically moves switches and wires and connects their circuit to the other party's circuit, rings them, and gets them through. This is really overkill for most, most of what any of us would be doing, and it, it's used in, in large military units. Like, you know, you would have a battalion headquarters in each one of the companies. We'd be hooked together like that. As for what phones are out there, um, first of all, I'll say any of the older-style field phones are compatible. You can use a Polish, a Russian, a German in the U.S. all in the same circuit. The only ones that are not are the newer digital ones that have a touch-tone keypad. If you see a touch-tone keypad, leave it alone. You're not going to be able to do any of this with it. Uh, they all have their strengths and weaknesses. The U.S. is the most rugged. Uh, it's also the most expensive. Uh, it does limit you to D batteries on the TA-312. Uh, there is There are German ones out there. Uh, they're very well made, probably the best craftsmanship, of course, you know, typical German. You are limited to D-cell batteries, and they do have a weak point that they use a special battery holder, and if you break that plastic battery holder, your entire phone is out of commission. The Polish ones out there, also some Russian ones, the Model 43s, uh, they're probably the cheapest on the market, typically around $40, $45 for a good tested one. They are one of my favorites because, number one, they're cheapest, and number two, they have plain wire terminals for battery, so you can hook up and use any kind of battery. I've currently got those in my shop, and we're selling them with AA battery holders. And that way, if you've got everything else running on AA's and you've got rechargeable AA's, power isn't an issue. The last one out there uh, is the USTA-1, which is actually a sound-powered phone that doesn't use batteries it, it is neat in that regard however uh, it also requires you to speak much louder and has uh, much lower audio and it's also uh, much harder to find there aren't many out there on the market and you're going to pay two to three times what you know a polish or a german is going to cost you if you find any uh, so bang for the buck right now on the market the polish ones and russian ones the, both their model 43s are interchangeable 
are probably the best ones out there. So I hope this helps you understand a little bit about field phones, and uh, thanks for the great question. And if anybody does need field phones, I will give a shameless plug here, and I do have a limited number still in stock on my website, and all ours are tested before we ship them out, so take a look at oldgrouch.com if you want to see what some look like. Thanks again, and thanks for the show, Jack. Boy, I uh, I remember military field phones. Uh, they were certainly still being used an awful lot back when I served in the in the early nineties. Um, I also remember a way that you can interrogate people using them, but I, I I won't tell you how to do that on the air right now. But if you wanted to figure it out or find information about it, I'll just say that it, it it's not hard to find. Um, I think they're a great tool. I don't know how practical they are for the average prepper, but I think that they can have a lot of utility. I think where security is not a concern, if security is not a concern um, for, you know, let's say camp or farm level stuff, I think radios are just superior because they go where you are. And I think cellular phones have rendered a lot of this old comm gear unnecessary, but that's while they work. So I think that they make a lot of sense, but you need to think about the application as they apply to your individual needs. And uh, one thing about them is they do work, and they pretty much work bulletproof. And it's a good skill to have, to know how to set them up and to uh, to use them and how to communicate on them. So great stuff from Tim Glantz, and I will uh, look up the page on Old Grouch where they have them and put a link in the show notes for you. My next question is for Darby Simpson. Um, Darby, can you please describe the feeding regimen for pastured pork and their, uh, as to their supplemental feed? What do you feed your pigs? What protein ratios do you maintain? What stages do you make changes uh, to that? And how long does it take to finish out pastured pork? Additionally, can you please discuss the age of pigs when you acquire them and how you find your stock? Jack, this is a great question and something I always stress in my consulting sessions when talking about pigs. If you don't know how much feed to buy and how long it will take to finish an animal before you start, then you can't make good management decisions, which in turn will lead to uh, some less than desirable results in the end. Uh, in addition to grazing in the forested areas of our property, we supplement our pigs with a mix of locally raised GMO-free corn and roasted soybeans. Our grain mill adds an organic, complete mineral supplement to the grains during the mixing process, which is key to success. Uh, the company uh, that produces the mineral mix, which in our case is Healthter Feeds, has recommendations on how to balance the mineral with specific uh, protein rations at different stages of growth. So initially, smaller wean pigs from 40 to 110 pounds would be on a 17 to 18% protein and then drop down to a 15% protein ration at about 110 to 120 pounds live weight until finish. I should point out that different mineral supplement companies are going to have different recommendations based on the science they have on their own product. And I would suggest that anyone follow those guidelines that they outline exactly and don't stray from those very far unless you're just having some really bad results, in which case there may be something else going on. Uh, I would also encourage anyone feeding grains to use an organic mineral supplement um, from a, a quality company like Helfter or uh, any of the other companies out there because most likely your grazing areas will be deficient in mineral content due to your soils being deficient because of poor agricultural practices. This is going to particularly be the case if you're using an old row crop field that's been restored into a perennial grass system. Uh, and then obviously monoculture grains uh, are going to be deficient as well. Um, so the mineral balancer ensures a complete feed and will help to ensure that you have happy, healthy animals who will perform and in turn be profitable. 
Now, as far as sourcing um, wiener pigs, we typically like to get them at about 40 to 50 pounds or roughly two months of age. Uh, sometimes they can be a little bit bigger depending on where we source them from. Generally speaking, in the past, we've worked with a number of larger, like-minded farms, um, such as ourselves, over the years to acquire wean pigs. And we we have also sourced them through sites uh, like Craigslist on occasion, but typically only in a pinch. I would like to point out that we have never purchased pigs at a stockyard auction, and there are many, many reasons for that, which I will not go into today. Uh, actually, just last week, we took possession of 18 Brookshire pigs from a new source for the first time that's really exciting for us here. These pigs were custom-raised for our farm by a young man who approached us about two years ago uh, wanting to do some farming like we're doing here. And he's not in a position to farm full-time, but he wanted to scratch his farming itch and make some money, so we made the decision to put him in business, custom farrowing pigs for our operation. And we're paying him a pretty big premium for these pigs, over what we have been paying, but we think that that's a very worthwhile investment. Uh, they're raised to our specifications, and they're, they're bred to meet our delivery schedule. Uh, he's also training them uh, to electric fence before delivering them to our farm, which is a huge benefit. Um, but most importantly, we've inspired a young person to start a profitable and ethical farming enterprise, all while dealing another small blow to, to Big Ag. And I'm convinced the only way to eventually win the war with Big Ag is through death by a thousand paper cuts. And last week, we gave them another paper cut. Uh, now, in terms of, of gain, what we've seen in general on our farm is that these 40 to 50 pound wean pigs will average about 50 pounds of gain per month through the warmer growing season, which here in central Indiana is April to October. So we allow anywhere from four to five months to finish our pigs uh, in the forest and then take them to the processor at about 250 to 300 pounds. Uh, pigs are really efficient at gaining weight up to that size, but over 300 pounds, they begin to, to slow down while consuming more feed and they become less profitable. So the old rule of thumb is that pigs uh, would need four pounds of grain to one pound of gain live weight uh, if you're talking about more of a conventional approach where they're not out grazing. What we've seen, uh, though, is something closer to a three-to-one ratio, which means our pigs are getting at least 25 to 33 percent of their feed from the forest. Obviously, that's going to be higher uh, in the middle of the season, like now in July, versus you know early in the season or later in the season. But uh, in time as we increase the number of paddocks we're using, uh, we'll continue to see that number uh, decline and see our profits increase. So now, if uh, if information like you've just heard and, and more like it sounds interesting to you, uh, I would encourage you to visit my website at uh, DarbySimpson.com. There are a number of free open source articles out there on a myriad of subjects about working with livestock and running a farm business, uh, infrastructure, just all kinds of stuff. Uh, if you would like to, you can also sign up for the, uh, the free email blog newsletter. Uh, and while I have everyone's ear, um, Really excited to uh, give you a little teaser for a, a class that's going to be taking place at Elisha Spring Farm in early September of this year. A gentleman named Mike Hagwood, who has been on TSP, and myself, will be co-instructing a two-day workshop on pasture and livestock management at this Perma Ethos event. 
I am really excited about this class. I love teaching, and I'm also really looking forward to teaching with Mike, uh, who is just a super knowledgeable guy and has a lot of great experience, uh, particularly with cattle and forages and specifically with grazing dairy cattle. I just uh, really feel like our, our skill sets and our experiences are going to complement one another, and there's really not going to be a whole lot of overlap. And we're, we're just stoked about this, this class. So uh, if you'd like to learn more about Mike, check out TSP episode number 1192. It was a really great interview that he did with uh, Jack a couple years ago. Uh, so the workshop, uh, I'm telling you, this is just going to be jam-packed with info. And um, it's going to take place at Elisha Spring Farm in just about two months from now. Uh, it will begin on uh, Thursday evening, September 3rd, and it will run through Sunday morning, September 6th. Uh, some of the topics, just to give you an idea, that we will be covering include selecting forages, pasture management, soil restoration, stress-free livestock handling techniques, uh, rotational grazing, uh, buried water systems, and we're even going to be doing a, a short fence building session on high tensile fence uh, like we use here at my place. Uh, there's also going to be a, a pretty heavy emphasis on business planning, cash flow planning, and marketing your products. So uh, watch for an official announcement in the next week on Permanent Ethos and also on my website, and we will have all the details listed out there soon, and you'll be able to uh, sign up for the class if you're interested. I really hope to uh, to see and meet a, a whole bunch of you TSP listeners out in West Virginia this September. Jack, as always, thank you so much. Take care, and everyone have a great uh, 4th of July holiday. Great stuff from Darby. One of the things I'd kind of like to expand on there is that when you heard Darby talk about wanting to take more control about farrowing, which is ha making pigs have more pigs, you notice that he chose to, to come up with a way to work with somebody else to give them the ability to provide that service to him. Sort of like an employee, sort of like a contractor, but still an independent business person. I think that that's where a lot of advancement is available in farming today. And that's how people can get in and involved uh, who are not maybe ready to do everything themselves. And I also think there's a, a, a brilliance there. Uh, just running a small homestead here, I realize there's a lot of things I want to do that I don't do because I don't have time. I can't imagine being a guy like Darby who's running cattle and pigs and chickens every single day. And then saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to see to the breeding of pigs on top of all this. And I'm going to grow my own feed for my own pigs. And I'm going to, I mean, we'd all like to do as much as we can with what we have. But the end, in the end, we can only do so much with what we have. And being smart enough to know what to partner on, what to outtask, and what to outright purchase, I think makes a lot of sense. You'll also notice the other thing I think that really is, is an unsaid lesson here with Darby. When he started running pastured pork, he didn't pay a premium. He didn't go out and have somebody specifically breed them for him. He went to the open market and bought what he could afford uh, for the purpose that he had, developed his own market to the point where now he has people coming to him. He's selling out his production every year. He can sell at a premium. Now he can up his quality by going, I want this breed, I want to bread for this time, etc. He learned his trade, and then he's now becoming a master of his trade. In, in agriculture, I think what we need to do is put ourselves through our own apprenticeship program uh, many times. There's not a lot of places anymore you can go be an apprentice to somebody and really work your way up. You have to kind of jump in with both feet. But what you do is you take one component and you let somebody else do everything else. And you just get good at that one component. And then you add a component, you add a component, and you get to the point where you go, okay, this is as much as I want to do. And then you, you become a master at that. 
and you figure out how to partner and work with others for those other needs. I, I think that's beautiful to see, and it's a lesson that I think a lot of folks could really learn a lot from that want to get into something like this because they want to do everything. Figure out what makes money. Figure out the few things you have to do to, to get the piece of profit that, that does that. Do that first. Learn your trade. Get good at it. And build on from there. Really great stuff. Next question is for Chef Keith Snow. This is from uh, a listener named Alan. Alan says, I have learned from you and Chef Keith Snow that vegetable oil is uh, fraudulent, made from seeds, not vegetables, and much of it is industrial junk. But what is the alternative way for deep frying? To properly deep fry something, the oil has to be very hot. Food has to be completely immersed in the oil, so it has to be quite deep. This means quite a large amount of oil. Pure olive oil is okay because I think it barely gets, but I think it, because I think it barely gets hot enough and still burns and it's still quite expensive. Is there a convenient, economical, and healthy alternative to junk oil? Chef Keith, what say you, sir? Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. I wanted to answer Alan's question about frying in oil and uh, give you my two cents on the topic. Now, um, you mentioned in your question that Jack and I have sort of advised against the industrial junk, the quote-unquote vegetable oil, which uh, is nothing but seed oil. And those type of oils, um, corn oil, vegetable oil, soybean oil, all that type of stuff is not, you know, the Mazzolas of the world. That is not high-quality oil. It has the wrong composition of fats in it, too many polyunsaturated fats as opposed to saturated fats. Um, so all in all, they're not good to fry in, and I don't uh, I don't fry anything in uh, that type of oil. Now, coming from a long history in the restaurant business where there was usually a fryer, um, Many times in the restaurant business, it just says fry oil and, and, you know, the chefs don't even look to see what it is. Uh, the one thing that they do is every night when, when the restaurant is closed and they're cleaning up, the oil is cooled down and it's filtered and used again. And the amount of stuff that comes out of that filtering process is amazing and it makes oil that should be thrown away because of the heat damage. It makes it look clean enough to use again. Therefore, um, when you eat a lot of fried food out in restaurants, um, it kind of is a double whammy of, of a poor health choice. Now, deep frying can be excellent if it's done properly, but what oil do you use? Now, um, you're right in the fact that uh, you can use like a light or a pure olive oil, but they definitely don't take the heat all that well. Now, that said, there are very famous chefs that swear by using even extra virgin olive oil to fry. But when they're doing it, they might be, you know, frying a uh, stuffed squash blossom for, for a few seconds, but they're not doing, um, you know, anything serious. They're certainly not doing, you know, hardcore deep fat frying. Most of the time they're probably doing like shallow frying or pan frying, which is another technique to where, um, like pan fried chicken in a cast iron skillet where you would flip it one time. Um, that's still considered, you know, frying, but it may not be deep frying. So deep frying, there's a lot of oil. And just one quick tip, anybody out there that's going to um, deep fry some foods, you want a large container. And the more fat or oil that you have, the more steady of a temperature you're going to have when you drop foods in to fry. If you don't have a lot of oil, number one, 
um, the oil temperature is going to drop drastically when you put in something room temperature, and that's going to allow you to have soggy food, which you don't want. But the other thing that you need to keep in mind is you need to use a container that's really large, and you don't want to fill that thing up past, I'd say, 50%. Because oil expands greatly when it's hot and even more when you put foods into it. And you definitely do not want um, bubbling, burning oil coming over the side of your container because it will catch fire quick. And I've seen that in kitchens. It is nasty. So that's a quick tip for um, doing the deep frying. Now, what oil do I recommend? Well, in your question, you mentioned um, the term economical. And unfortunately... Economical and good, in this case, generally don't go hand in hand. Now you can buy, you know, the cheapest swill vegetable oil um, at the store for a couple of dollars, you know, for a decent amount, enough to get by to, to do a couple of fries with. Um, you could step up and probably get peanut oil, and usually the peanut oil is sold by the gallon in most stores. Now, if if I were to use Sort of a junky type oil from the supermarket. Peanut oil would be the choice. Um, I don't do a lot of deep frying, but peanut oil, out of all those kind of cheapy supermarket oils, that's going to hold um, hold its consistency best. It's not going to degrade as fast. It's got a rather high um, smoke point. But you can use things like uh, lard. You can use beef tallow. If you go over, well, if you went over to London 20 years ago and you got fish and chips at the fish and chip shop, the fat in those fryers was beef tallow, rendered clean beef fat. And that is an excellent thing to fry in. Is it easy to get? Well, yes and no. I mean, you you can find tallow. I wouldn't say it's easy to get. You definitely can find lard. Uh, I definitely wouldn't recommend Crisco shortening by all means, but you can find lard, and that is a good thing to fry in. Um, coconut oil is excellent to fry in, and it's very, very stable. And, and what these last few oils I'm mentioning have in common is they're highly saturated. Now, I know the health advice over the past few decades is to avoid saturated foods, um, but I think the opposite is true. You want to eat more saturated foods, uh, saturated fat foods, particularly this oil. Um, the more saturated the fat is, the more stable it is. The higher um, smoke point, the more it can take the heat without degrading and becoming something even worse than it was when it started, as is the case with some of these cheap vegetable oils. Now, I think the gold standard for frying is red palm oil. And I'm going to provide Jack a link to a pretty reputable online vendor where you can get some red palm oil. And again, this is, it's not cheap, um, but it is excellent and you can use it multiple times, particularly if you filter it. Uh, and that, that means pouring it through a large coffee filter or several layers of cheesecloth, which is fairly inexpensive. But either coconut oil or red palm oil, if I had to say what my ultimate choice it would be one of those two, and I wouldn't get the extra virgin coconut oil. I'd get a um, a lesser grade, a refined coconut oil, because sometimes the extra virgin can really bring a lot of coconut flavor. And, and for instance, if you're frying, I don't know, um, a chicken breast, you may not want a coconut-scented chicken breast, and a lot of times that oil can bring some flavor. But red palm oil, coconut oil, lard, tallow, those are in my opinion, your best choices. They're on the upper end as far as price, but um, unfortunately in this case, economical and really good don't really marry too well. So I hope that's helped you out. 
um, with your deep frying adventures. And uh, I wanted to thank everybody for listening. I hope you all have a tremendous 4th of July holiday weekend. And uh, I hope everybody has some great food. I'll throw out one quick mention that uh, we are very close to manufacturing those pasta sauces you've been hearing me talk about. When they're ready, they're going to be shipped to Amazon, and I still have coupon codes available to anyone that wants to give the sauces a try um, off of Amazon.com. Just email me, Keith at HarvestEating.com, and I'll be happy to provide you a coupon. So with that, thanks so much, TSP audience. Jack, have a couple of great days off here coming up, and we'll talk to you all soon. Take care. Great stuff from uh, Chef Keith. Um, I will get those links into the show notes if Keith gets them to me. I just emailed him now and realized he never actually sent me links for the coconut or palm oil stuff. But I agree with a lot of that there. I will also tell you that you deer hunters uh, always render out your excess deer tallow. It is an incredible fat for frying in. It really is. It's great stuff. Uh, so make sure you uh, you consider doing that. Uh, I saw Dave Canterbury in one of his videos deep fry basically like a cornbread hush puppy in deer towel, and I'm like, i got to try that, and I did. It's pretty fantastic. And always think about sources of fat that you can get. Um, a lot of times people will go out and do something like buy a whole or half a cow, organic grass-fed cow. And, uh, you know, Chef Keith brought up uh, uh, beef tallow. Well, you got all this excess fat that's usually left on that stuff and i like cooking you know my steak with with some fat on it but you know depending on how you get that meat prepared you might have like whole uh you know loins and what have you with huge amounts of, of additional tallow on there man take that stuff out render it out and use it it is just high high quality stuff or talk to uh your grass-fed beef producers and ask them you know who they use for for slaughter and see if you can get the excess trimmings of beef tallow and beef fat. They'll probably sell them to you for next to nothing. So check out that option as well. And again, deer hunters, render that deer tallow. It's not hard. It's easy to learn how to do. And it's good, good stuff. And I just think of all the years that I didn't do it when I was a kid because my, my dad just said, trim that off, son. I thought he was wrong. Dad, you were wrong if you ever listen. Anyway, uh, last question today is for Nick Ferguson. This is from Tyler. He says he's about to close on a property with five acres, about 20% wooded. The rest is pasture, though not well managed, mostly uh, just having been mowed in bush hog for the past few years. I have some budget, say maybe $10,000 for improvements and development. But I realize that isn't much. Can you give me some very budget-conscious steps to get my property in a better shape without blowing my limited budget? There's a few outbuildings and a decent barn on the property. It, it's fenced with barbed wire, not much more. We're in Tennessee with rolling hills, pretty good-looking soils. Uh, I need to keep the pasture controlled. I can't see doing expensive earthworks or buying thousands of dollars of trees right away. So, Nick, what would you do? You're pretty good at stretching dimes into dollars and more with this stuff. Hey, Tyler. This is Nick Ferguson calling in to answer your question. Um, here's my advice. If you have not already taken a good PDC, take one. And I would say hire a permaculture consultant to come out and help you formulate a plan to move forward. I think the most valuable advice... I could give you would be to hire a professional to help you think about what you want and need and then get a plan down on paper so that you can move forward with developing your property with wisdom. Um, man, there, there's a lot you can do that's a, that's a pretty nice budget. 
Um, there's even a lot you can do after you take a PDC, hire a permaculture consultant, and shoot, if your fence lines are already clear, I think adding a couple strands of electric fence, getting an electric fence charger, and buying three or four sheep like a dorper sheep or four brush goats, just any old goat will do. Let them use the barn for shelter. Make sure they have water. Let them go to town on the pasture and the wooded area. You don't have to worry about rotational grazing, four acres. Well, well, the four acres of pasture with the extra wooded area, that's plenty for those animals. You will, you'll probably not even need to provide them anything else to eat except for a little bit of hay in the winter. They'll help man- maintain the pasture at its current state and it will buy you time to figure out the rest. So, if you have a neighbor with a tractor and a two-bottom plow, you can form swales with that, but now we're getting back to the issue of knowledge and wisdom. If you don't have a big picture of what you want done and the knowledge of how to get there and how to connect the elements and how to, to design this intelligently uh, and the vision of where you want to be in five years, then I say don't do anything but observe and learn. You know, you could buy some fruit trees to stick in around the house where they can be taken care of and find a good spot with morning sun and afternoon shade that is close to the house and start gardening there. Buy some good books on permaculture and homesteading. Learn all you can. Um, if you start doing that, you'll quickly develop a vision for your property that a skilled designer can come in and knock out a design for you in no time. That alone will probably save you a decade of screw-ups and retries. I know because... I've made mistakes after mistake after mistake, killed animals through negligence or just not knowing what I was doing, had problems with my garden for years and years and years. So I've made a lot of mistakes through the years and found a lot of ways to fix mistakes. So I hope this helps you and anybody in the audience who might be in a similar situation and start learning um, and do little things. Start with little things and work your way up to the bigger things. I'm Nick Ferguson. You can find out, uh, find out more about me and how to contact me at permacultureclassroom.com. Have a great weekend. Great stuff from Nick. And I think that a lot of us, when we finally get the homestead of our dreams and we want to get to work on it, we are thinking very large scale. And a large scale is a good thing to do, but then to come back and design you know, from the ground up. So I think it's interesting, or good, I, I would say, um, that one of the first things to acknowledge is I have to do something with this. I have to maintain this pasture. See, so that's that's identifying a need. That's a need. No, one way or another, you got to deal with that. So I think that's one of the parts of this process is to say, well, there's certain things we need to do. So we need a solution, even if it's not going to be the permanent long-term solution to this issue. And as long as that, that solution doesn't do harm... We'll go with the easiest, simplest thing first to knock out the needs, and then we can get in and plan. And the idea of taking a full PDC and maybe getting a consultant to come in and work with you, I mean, if you take an on-site PDC, you're out with maybe 1200 bucks or less. If you take like ours online through Permaethos, you're out 750 bucks. Getting a consultant on-site for a day is going to run you 800 1200 bucks. Uh, it sounds like a lot of money, but I'll tell you that Every time I've looked at a property for someone 
And, and I don't do consulting for money. I'll do it for free when it's easy to do for free, generally, is what happens. If I have to travel somewhere or something, it's probably not going to happen. I, I don't have the time. I'm not in that business. That's why I recommend Nick as a consultant and others as consultants, depending on where you're at. Um, but if I happen to be sitting with someone, they show me pictures or whatever, I just give them free consulting. And to be fair to Nick, Nick does that way more than I do. And he is in the business, so it's costing him money to do it for free. Um, I know every time I've done that, in five minutes, I've helped that person make a decision to not do something they thought they were going to do that was going to cost them lots of money long-term and lots of misery long-term, and sometimes because we've made those mistakes ourselves and sometimes because we've seen other people do it. Uh, so I definitely back that. And uh, I, I would want to just say, you know, congratulations on, on getting that piece of property. And don't be afraid to take your time. I think that's my biggest piece of advice with these, these things. Identify the needs and identify the basic things you need to do for yourself and your family from a production standpoint and make them small. Pretty much I agree with Jeff Lawton on this one. Like, okay, walk outside, take two steps outside of your back door, stop, look around you, And about as big an area as you could make a radius with your arms, design that. Then take two more steps and do that again. And then do that all the way around your house. Design that zone, you know, .5, that, that, that first part of zone one first. The little things, because those are the things that are going to produce your herbs, your vegetables. Uh, there's things you're going to look at and see every day. And deal with those bigger issues. Like, yeah, you can't let the pasture grow into a monstrosity. So, you know, maybe for the first, you're there in the summer, it's hot. This isn't a time to be learning to deal with animals when they're right in the middle of the heat. You're just getting there. You've got all the other crap going on. Maybe you just hire somebody locally to you know, bush hog the thing for you a few times. Uh, it, it's not the best solution, but it's been what's going on. It's not going to hurt. So those are my additional thoughts on that. Thanks to Nick for his answer. I am now going to send us off into the 4th of July weekend, and I'm going to bring up a controversial subject, even though part of me feels like, don't do it. But I am, because I know you're going to be blasted with it this week. There are people that have decided once again they're going to burn the American flag to protest America on America's birthday, and it will be all over TV and all over Facebook and all over, it's been all over this morning, and everybody's already up in arms and angry and rah, screaming and gnashing teeth. Here's a couple things I'd like you to think about. First of all, the only reason that assholes burn the American flag is because people like you care. Okay? I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying they should do it. I'm not saying I agree with it. I disagree with it. I think they're assholes, and when I see somebody do it, what I want to do, and this is very important, we separate what we want to do from what we know we need to do. What I want to do is smack them with a large frozen fish. Okay? Something like a salmon. A big one. Held by the tail, smack, right? And I want to do far worse. And it's not because I think the flag in of itself, just a flag that some guy bought from a convenience store for five bucks that was made in China, is a holy relic. It's because you're doing it to be a hurtful asshole and insult people, okay? But what would happen if these people that did this organized their big flag burning, called up all the media outlets, and no one gave a shit? No one cared. No one showed up, no one resisted them, no one cared. People just walked by them and refused to even look at them. And if they were yelling and carrying on like idiots while they're stomping on a burning flag, no one paid attention. I'll tell you what would happen. It would stop. It would stop. Because they only do it to get a reaction, which means when they do it and they get a reaction, you're giving them what they want. They're controlling you. And there's people that say this should be illegal. We already did this. We already had this argument. It's not illegal. 
There is no law that prevents the burning of the flag that's enforceable in any way. And it hasn't been since a Supreme Court decision made in 1969. This has led over the years to multiple debates to get everybody all up in a lather about whether or not we should amend the Constitution because the SCOTUS ruling said that it's protected under free speech. And I agree with that decision. Again, it doesn't mean I think you should do it. It means that it is free speech. If it's your flag that you own and you want to burn it, it makes you an asshole, but it doesn't make you break the law. And it doesn't mean that I should be able to use force and aggression upon you just because you pissed me off. If I used force and aggression on every person that pissed me off, there'd be a lot of people with a lot of force and aggression up their ass. And I bet that's the case for you, too. But we have been led and lathered to believe this is something different, that it's important that we stand against this. Hold on. Don't listen to me. I hear people talk about men who serve this nation, etc. I'd like to share with you today some quotes. I will give you the quote, and then I will tell you who said it. And this was the last time we did this, when there were senatorial hearings, etc., on whether or not we should consider an amendment to ban flag burning. Quote, The First Amendment exists to ensure that freedom of speech and expression applies not just to that which we agree or disagree, but also that which we find outrageous. I would not amend that great shield of democracy to hammer a few miscredence. The flag will still be flying proudly long after they have slunk away. This was said by General Colin Powell. Next one. Real patriotism cannot be coerced. Our freedom to speak was attacked, not our flag. The former, not the latter, needs the protection of our Constitution and our laws. Former Senator Bob Kerry. Kerry served in the Navy SEAL Special Forces Unit during Vietnam and later received the Congressional Medal of Honor. Let me read his again for you. This is a Navy SEAL that received the CMH. Real patriotism cannot be coerced. Our freedom to speak was attacked, not our flag. The former, not the latter, needs the protection of our Constitution and our laws. How about this? This is, again, in response to a proposed amendment to make flag burning illegal. Quote, this amendment should be defeated. The dangers from it far outweigh the threat we have to the flag. I simply do not believe that this is a major problem for this country, requiring an amendment to the Constitution of the United States of America. This was said in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee on 428-1999 by Senator, at the time, John Glenn. John Glenn, also known as an astronaut, but he was also a combat veteran, who flew missions in World War II in Korea for the United States Marines. Quote, This proposed amendment would not expand the list of freedoms. This amendment, for the first time, would limit individual freedom. Senate before the uh, testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee, 42899, by former Senator John Chaffee. Chaffee served as an, off, as an officer in the United States Marine Corps and later as the Secretary of the United States Navy. Quote, during my years of military and civilian service during the Cold War, I believe I was working to uphold democracy against the totalitarianism of Soviet communist expansion. I did not believe then, nor do I believe now, that I was defending just a piece of geography, but a way of life. If this amendment becomes part of our Constitution, this way of life will be diminished. America will be less free and more like the former Soviet Union, present-day China, Iraq under Saddam Hussein, or Afghanistan under the Taliban. 
This was also testimony before Senate Judiciary Committee 31004 by former Assistant Secretary of Defense Lawrence J. Corb. Uh, he was the pre Secretary of Defense under President Reagan and served on active duty as a naval flight officer. Quote, As offensive and painful as flag burning is to me, I still believe that those dissenting voices need to be heard. The freedom of expression, even when it hurts, is the trusted test of our dedication to the belief that we have that right. Also testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee 31004, Gary May. Gary May lost both legs in a landmine explosion while serving in Vietnam. Later became a chairman of the Veterans Defending the Bill of Rights. Quote, People are born free. It says in the Declaration of Independence they have a right to express their opinions. Even if I don't like their opinions they express or the means by which they express it. They have the right to say it even if those opinions are incoherent. This was said by James Warner. Warner was, the former, was a former prisoner of war and domestic policy advisor to President Ronald Reagan. And there's a few other statements in this article that I'm reading this from, from Veterans for Common Sense, Veterans Defending the Bill of Rights, and Veterans for Peace. I'll put a link of that to you for you to see in the show notes today. If you don't want to listen to me, listen to people that serve this nation at the highest level, that sacrifice for this nation at the highest level. Without all freedom, we have no freedom. And the veterans out there that want to use force and violence against a person, I will remind you right now of the oath you took if you were an enlisted person. I will not remind you of the oath of an officer because I was not an officer. I was an enlisted service member, and I would remind you of that oath because I feel qualified to do so because I took it along with you. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will obey, obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me according to regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice, so help me God. There are parts of that oath that no longer apply to you after you leave service such as obeying the orders of the President of the United States or the officers appointed over you because they no longer are appointed over you. They are no longer part of your chain of command because you have exited the chain of command. But when you speak as a veteran, when you use the fact that you served, when you use the fact that you wore the uniform to make a statement that I believe you are still bound by the parts of the oath that can and do apply to you, specifically solemnly swearing or affirming that you will defend and support the Constitution of our nation against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and that you will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. True faith and allegiance. I was told by somebody today on Facebook that their oath to the military did not apply to individuals. In other words, I have not pledged to defend and support the individual's rights. Then you don't get to say, I was fighting for their freedom. I'll tell you what. Those of us who have served that will not stand for the rights of an individual do not have the convenience of hiding in the words that we fought for the rights of all. You do not get to do that. You do not get to say that. Well, let me rephrase that. You do get to say it, but you don't get to have anybody believe it or for it to have any meaning. Those of us who won't stand for the rights of one have no haven in claiming to stand for the rights of many. We do not. 
We have no haven whatsoever in that claim. We can't run and hide behind it. We either mean what we say or we do not mean what we say. There's a lot of things I'm unhappy about with my country. For that, I'm called anti-American. I call it patriotic. America did not become as good as it is because people were happy with what it was. We really didn't. And I think we were better not long ago. I think the America that I remember as a teenager was a better place than the America I see today in many ways. And it's not because people have rights today that they didn't have then, like that's the bad part. It's that we can't agree anymore on what it even means to be America. We think it means getting our way. We think it means our side wins. There's no grace on either side of any issue that's been won by either side in the last 20 years. The response is always, we want shut up and go away. And that's true of the left, and it's true of the right. Our nation today is more divided than we have been in any time of the history that I've been alive to see it. And I'm not happy about it. And I'll tell you a secret. When you're out waving your flags and eating your hot dogs this weekend, I'll tell you a secret. But people running the show, that's the way they want it. That's the way they want it because it makes you easy to control. If you're proud of American ideals and American values, then I challenge you to stand for all of them, not just the ones that you like, not just the ones that give you what you want. If you believe in freedom and liberty, which, by the way, I think are American ideals, but I also think they're human ideals. I think they're much bigger than just our country. I think it's great that our country would embrace them, but I think it's arrogant to believe that we are it when it comes to that. If we are for freedom and liberty, then we should be for freedom and liberty for all, not just those that we agree with. When freedom and liberty fall for some, eventually they fall for everyone. History has shown this to be true time and time again. And again, one more challenge to you vets out there. Those of you who will not stand for the rights of one cannot claim the haven of standing for the rights of many. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. But enjoy your holiday. Enjoy celebrating the independence of this nation. Despite all of the mistakes that our country has made, there's not a lot of places doing it much better. And there is no place where people have a greater opportunity to make the dream into a reality. It won't ever happen until we stop fighting with each other and start fighting for ideals versus what we want. Freedom, liberty, independence for everyone. That's the dream of America, one we have yet to live up to, but one I hope we will someday. And I send you off to your fourth with that final thought. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Revolution.